Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, after Uvalde, the slow walking of a firing of a Texas Ranger shows the lack of transparency about how the DPS failed. Fast growth during a record drought. The Texas Hill Country is running out of water. Here's a solution. And book bans in Texas are getting worse. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Sixteen months after the school shooting in Uvalde that killed 19 students and two teachers, there are still too many unanswered questions about why law enforcement failed that day. Uvalde's mayor at the time, Don McLaughlin, called it a cover-up. The head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Steve McCraw, said his institution did not fail that day while they waited over an hour in the hallway while the victims of the gunman bled out on the classroom floor. But McCraw did also call the response an abject failure. Many of the parents and local officials said McCraw should resign, but McCraw has not been held accountable for the failure. Instead, the legislature gave him a $45,000 raise, paying him an annual total of $345,250. Although Texas Ranger Christopher Ryan Kendall was fired, but he's still drawing a DPS paycheck. He's on paid suspension while he waits for his firing to go into effect, and the holdup is McCraw. He's refusing to hear Kendall's appeal. This refusal, or stalling, is odd, but doing so does prevent a public hearing on Kendall's firing, which could provide more public information about the DPS failure in Uvalde. Jason Book writes about this in the Texas Observer. His article is DPS Still Avoiding a Public Hearing on Uvalde Massacre by Delaying the Appeal of a Fired Texas Ranger. Director Steve McCraw is also postponing a public reckoning. Yes, this has been a really unusual case from the get-go. It's just there's just been a lot of questions from more or less the moment Ranger Kindle got fired or, or got suspended, I mean, back in uh, September. And they've just been um, piling up. So when he initially got suspended back in September, that garnered some attention because that was affecting his pending criminal investigations, cases that he had investigated and referred to district attorneys in South Texas for prosecution. Um, the Uvalde County DA had, um, had, had cut a pretty favorable plea deal in a capital murder case um, that he'd investigated uh, shortly after he was put on suspension. Um, he was, uh, she dismissed, um, a couple other cases and, and she'd said that she was very concerned about what would happen to, for, to her, um, um, cases unrelated to Uvalde that he'd investigated going forward. But at that time, she also raised concerns that, that she thought DPS might not have followed their own policies, um, when they when they suspended Kindle, and I think part of that came from the 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 um, um, the DP the Texas Department of Public Safety Inspector General had said had sent her a letter, sort of trying to assuage her concerns about this um, about this suspension, saying, "Well, this has nothing to do with misconduct 
or integrity. Um, and so for the law enforcement experts I spoke with back then, they were very confused by that. How could you be suspending someone and investigating them um, if it has nothing to do with their con- mis- with misconduct or their integrity? Um, the the letter that was sent to Kindle uh, uh, alerting him that he was suspended and being investigated said he was being investigated for uh, incompetence. And so it, it, it raised questions about whether DPS was being totally honest with everyone that they were dealing with here. Um, you know, th- these seem to be uh, in- incongruous statements. Um, and, and it also raised questions about DPS put in new policies, put new policies in place after the shooting at Robb Elementary. One of those policies um, requires DPS personnel to treat any armed individual at a school um, as though they're an active shooter, and that whether or not the shooter at Uvalde was an active shooter versus a, um, a barricaded subject is sort of this the subject of this big internal debate among law enforcement about the response. Um, and so some of the experts I asked to look at the records I had um, thought maybe they were retroactively applying a policy. And uh, in, in District Attorney Christina Mitchell um, felt similarly. She raised similar concerns. Um, in January, DPS Director Steve McCraw fired Ranger Kendall, uh, and here we are in September, and and he has avoided going to the next stage in the appeals process. So when a DP off, DPS officer is fired, um, their first recourse is to ask the director to review their case. He'll send them a letter that says, I've reached a preliminary determination to terminate your employment but if you want to we can set a meeting and um and and you can present your case to me and then the next stage after that is if he if he stands by his decision to fire them uh they go to the public safety commission which is a a, um, a board appointed by the governor that oversees dps looking at this but, it seems like that's what mccraw is trying to avoid he doesn't want this to go to the public safety commission because it would more questions would be asked than he's comfortable answering. It, you know, I can't I can't say exactly why he won't meet with Ranger Kindle, but a result of him not meeting with Ranger Kindle is there is not a public hearing. There won't there, until that happens, there won't be a public hearing um, on the Rangers actions that day in Uvalde. Um, and so in doing so, he's, you know, again, whatever his reason, the, 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 the concrete outcome is that, you know, that we're not hearing any public testimony about what happened. Um, and he's avoiding a confrontation with the Rangers. You know, the Ranger Kindle's superiors have, have stood by him um, through this and, and recommended against uh, his termination uh, former Rangers have said that that he was, you know, has spoken up on his behalf, and so um, you know it's not clear is this because he doesn't want to go to be in this pu- public confrontation with the Rangers who you know have this very larger than life image in Texas? Is it because he doesn't want to have um, you know public testimony? about what happened during the shooting at Robb Elementary. It's worth noting that I, I, I filed a Public Information Act request with DPS um, asking for records of everyone who'd requested a meeting with McCraw since uh, Ranger Kindle has been fired and everyone who'd received a meeting. 
Um, and so between January, when Ranger Kindle, Kindle was fired, and June, which is the most recent records DPS has provided me, uh, Director McCraw alerted 15 people that he intended to fire them. Uh, and uh, 14, or all 15 asked for meetings, but only one, uh, Ranger Kindle, hasn't been given a meeting with the director. So uh, Ranger Kendall, where was he on May 22nd, 2022 at the shooting at the Rob Elementary School in Uvalde? So he's based in Uvalde. He's the ranger who covers the Uvalde and Real counties. So he responded fairly quickly to the shooting. Um, he was there with a rifle. Number two at the rangers, Corey Lane, wrote a pretty lengthy memo defending Kindle. And he describes, he goes kind of minute by minute through the ranger's actions um you know he he met he his position is you know you could if you it describes kindle as sort of scrambling around uh you know, he's looking for a map at one point he's huddling with the commander of the the border patrol team that breached the doors at one point he's on the phone with his his direct supervisor he, at some points he's in the hallway at some points he's out front he, he's sort of moving around the campus throughout the Office of Inspector General, in its report um, recommending Kindle's firing, said basically he didn't do anything that changed the situation. He's a Texas Ranger. He has um, a sort of specific duty to stop a crime when he when he encounters it, and he didn't do anything that really changed the situation on the ground that day. Um, so he wasn't preventing yeah. anyone from going into the classroom. That's certainly not an allegation that's being made in the in the inspector general's report. Um, you know, the, the 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 assistant chief of the rangers wrote a rebuttal, basically saying, "Look, he's doing all these things. Um, he's he's you know trying to coordinate and share information. He's trying to confirm information. Um, no, no, you know, his posi- the, the the rangers' position is that nobody else in this in this situation would have would have fared any better or come up with anything any any other." Um, uh, path to take. If Kendall, if he was allowed to ch- challenge his I mean, paid suspension, you, we're calling him fired, but he's paid suspended right now, right? Well, he, he's received, so suspension, he's on suspension, but really he's received a letter from the director saying, I'm planning to fire you. I'm planning to terminate your employment. Yeah, well, that's been 16 months. He's... Yeah, well, it's been it's been he received that he was suspended pending the outcome of the investigation in September. And he received the letter saying, you know, I intend to fire you in January. If he was allowed to pursue his appeals, would we have an opportunity to gain more information about what happened in the with the chain of command with the DPS on on that uh, day of the shooting? I think so. I, you know, if this goes to the Public Safety Commission, um, it, it depends on whether Director McCross stands by his decision to fire Ranger Kindle or not. So if if they were to meet and the director were to change his mind to give him his job back or issue some lesser punishment, he wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the Public Safety Commission. So it's only if the re- Director McCross stands by his decision to terminate Ranger Kindle's employment, then he has the opportunity to appeal that decision to the Public Safety Commission. Um, you know, I've, nev- I've not sat in on one of these termination hearings before. I understand that they are fairly dry affairs usually, 
but um, there's a lot of this. This the, the, the general consensus is that this would be different because it's so hotly contested because there is such an internal disagreement within DPS about whether his actions warrant firing. Um, that there would have to be testimony, a, a lot of testimony about what happened that day and about what the appropriate steps. Um, would have been what the appropriate steps for a ranger for a law enforcement officer would have been and that has the potential to give us some insight into what happened that day that we've really only gotten through you know this sort of slow trickle of leaks um this this would give us um really the first public testimony we've had since the house hearings immediately after um after um the the shooting and and it would be in a less controlled environment. Jason Book is a freelance journalist. His article in the Texas Observer is DPS still avoiding a public hearing on Uvalde massacre. One of the fastest growing regions in the nation is the Texas Hill Country, particularly the stretch between San Antonio and Austin. But this summer, the lack of water in the region is becoming impossible to ignore. This week, the Greater Edwards Aquifer Alliance released a report making a case for using recycled water for irrigation and industrial needs in the Texas Hill Country. Rachel Haynes is the policy director for the Greater Edwards Aquifer Authority. Sure. So in this report, we are looking at how we can help manage the water supplies for this future growth and for current uh, residents of the Hill Country by analyzing Kamal County as a really good case study because of both the unique uh, opportunities it provides for reuse and because it has some of the largest springs in the state. So it really has uh, impactful areas we can look at when we see the declines in groundwater and surface water. So what we are looking at in this report is how we can use recycled water and recycled water, reuse water, reclaimed water, those can all be used interchangeably. So recycled water to ease the demands on our water supplies in the region and in Kamal County. And those water supplies are mostly groundwater from the Edwards Aquifer and the Trinity Aquifer. And we're really trying to show that any use you can use that's recycled water is groundwater and surface water you can leave back in the aquifers and in our lakes and streams. Where is that recycled water going now? So in the Hill Country and in Kamal County right now, there's just not a lot of recycled water use. There are some cities that do use recycled water. I mean, uh, San Antonio has a very large uh, percent of its supply coming from recycled water. Uh, cities like Fredericksburg and Bernie and Round Rock and Lakeway, we all we analyze all of those in the report as case studies. But even then, recycled water use just isn't something that we see a lot of in the Hill Country. And so we are advocating for increasing the use of recycled water. And that would come from wastewater that is treated to a high enough quality that it can be used for beneficial reuse. So that wastewater now is treated and then doesn't it go downstream? Don't they put that into like river flow? Yeah, there are two different ways uh, we can dis- 
discharge wastewater in the state of Texas. And one of those ways is they put them back into streams and creek beds, which we really uh, often don't advocate for in the hill country just because of the high quality creeks and streams we have in the hill country can be contaminated by wastewater, even if it is treated. And the other option is to use it for irrigation and land disposable land disposal, which is a, a better option in the hill country. But often that land disposal isn't the land disposable we're thinking of in this report, which would be irrigation of fields, sports complexes, landscaping, things like that. There's also a lot of fighting for, I mean, right now we're fighting for every drop of water. And mm -hmm. there are folks downstream who, by the time the water gets to them, even though it's been processed, cleaned a lot more through the natural river flow and gets to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, would that water, would those streams go dry? Would the rivers go dry if they, if we didn't uh, use, put the water in, into the streams? So that's not something we, we analyzed in this report per se. Um, I know we were really concentrating on Edwards Aquifer, Aquifer and Trinity Aquifer groundwater supplies. And there are already a lot of restrictions and regulations on putting um, treated wastewater as environmental flow in the Edwards Aquifer recharge zones and contributing zones in the first place. Um, so using the recycled water shouldn't have a huge impact on those environmental flows up in the hill country over the Edwards Aquifer and Trinity Aquifer contributing and recharge zones. What's What are the projections looking like for growth for these areas and the availability of water? Mm -hmm. So we, again, we analyzed Kamal County is our case study. And, you know, as of July 2020, 2022, excuse me, as of July 2022, Kamal County had already surpassed the Texas Water Development Board's 2030 population projection, so eight years early. And the Water Development Board now predicts that the county will grow by 94 percent by 2070 to over 350,000 residents. Now, Kamal County is one of the fastest growing counties in the U.S., so it is growing at a slightly faster rate than other hill country counties, but those aren't far behind at all. And, you know, the water supplies aren't increasing with that population growth. So going through all of this expense and discussion and study and debate so that we can have more water to water our lawns, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Should we be talking Definitely. More? Should we be talking more about how do we get away from some of the most wasteful practices? I think that's definitely a great discussion and, and something the Greater Ezra Aquifer Alliance supports. We we hand out yard signs that says, I'm not watering my lawn. I'm saving it for the, the whooping cranes and the farmers and the hill country springs. Um, but our report concentrates, yes, on landscape uh, irrigation as one option because it's, it is just quite silly that we use high quality drinking water to water our lawns in the hill country and in Texas as a whole. But we also talk about things that do need water irrigation, you know, sports complexes. We advocate for mining and industry and manufacturing, which are currently using high quality potable groundwater to use recycled water. And any bit that we can use of recycled water is groundwater that stays in our aquifers. So what's the big takeaway? Capsulize it for me. What do you want people to realize from this report? So I think we have two two big takeaways from this report. We conducted this report in order to 
see if we can get the information out and to get it to the Texas legislature so that they can conduct an interim study on water reuse in preparation for the 2025 legislative session. So we really encourage people to reach out to their uh, elected representatives and ask them to study water reuse and and to uh, let them know that it's important to them that protecting our groundwater supplies and our springs and our wonderful hill country environment is important to them. And then we would like people to know that there is an option out there, water recycling, that can help us protect our water sources in the hill country. Rachel Haynes is the policy director for the Greater Edwards Aquifer Authority. The freedom to read is under assault in the United States, particularly in public schools and particularly in Texas. That's according to a new report from PEN America. In July 2022 to July 2023, PEN America recorded 3,362 instances of book bans in the U.S. school classrooms and libraries. Jonathan Friedman is the director of free expression and educational programs at PEN America. I think the story in Texas is, you know, it's part of a national movement that we've seen unfold across a number of states. But one of the elements that we have yet to see take, uh, you know, a full toll in Texas is state legislation. So in a number of states like Florida, um, Missouri, Tennessee, more recently Iowa, there has been state level legislation that is being used to um you know, intimidate school districts or make it um, easier for, you know, individuals in their communities to put pressures on school districts to remove uh, books. I think the biggest difference in Texas right now is actually we we haven't seen that happen, although we can talk about the bill HB 900 uh, that was passed that that would have done that. But in the meantime, we are still seeing nonetheless a tremendous amount of mobilization at the local level to, you know, empower uh, groups of people to basically try and impose their vision of what is um, acceptable to have in school libraries on entire communities. And, you know, that's leading to book bans and and other kinds of um, uh, efforts across the state to, you know, make teachers nervous about what they're teaching. So the tyranny of a vocal minority. Absolutely. And I think it's a minority that... Um, is is particularly vocal and partic- growing more effective. You know, in a lot of school districts right now, um, they people who who run them feel like they just cannot compete with the demands that are coming against them and the intensity. They you know don't want teachers to have to um, worry about the safety of their jobs. They want to retain their school librarians, and so you know, in, in a lot of places, they've been willing to. Uh, maybe concede about removing books that people want removed. In, in other places, you're dealing with people elected to school boards who are passing policies that, you know, it basically appear designed to encourage um, the removal of books rather than their acquisition. And that's having an impact as well. Well, what is the impact that this is having on kids? Um, there's all sorts of uh, pearl clutching about uh, this. These are books are bad for kids. But they, I guess not having books for kids, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I think if you've seen any of the interviews with kids talking about like classrooms that don't have books on the shelves, it's pretty stark. Um, I think there are you know, only a handful of places where they have gone so far as to you know, remove all the books. A lot of places instead are 
just trying to essentially cull books that they feel for whatever reason or not don't belong. But, you know, they're touching on all kinds of books. We've seen the Bible become controversial. We've seen um, uh, an adaptation of the Diary of Anne Frank become controversial. Uh, we have seen even The Hobbit removed uh, sometime in the last year in one school district. Uh, it was removed from being accessible to a certain grade and, you know, made only kind of aged up, only available um, to kids above a certain level. Any, any think, idea why? What's, what's in The Hobbit that... You know, I don't honestly the know. magic it's, in whatever it's, you know they also in that same district removed um a book by stephen hawking about black holes in the universe so i mean you tell me that's a direct that's magic too <laughs> fantasy or direct attack yeah on science i mean you know it's true i don't want to beat around you know the bush here there are some of these books that do have sexual content i think a lot has been made of that when the reality is that a lot of teenagers or, or even some middle schoolers you know are interested in stories that speak to them reflect their real lives their real interests and this whole movement in many places you know is having a real impact on the availability of you know even classics like something like margaret atwood's the handmaid's tale which is frequently targeted you know that's a book that's a cautionary tale about the concentration of power in an authoritarian society and you really do have to wonder you know what is driving the ban on that? Well, and, I want to I want to say the thing that can't be said: these kids today are being exposed to the extreme sexual content online on their own. They see it all. They want context. They want to know what is this? How do I make sense of this? Is that normal? And who's going to explain it to them? Well, and I think books can be such a powerful medium for young people. You know, I think a lot of times right now there is this kind of fear of what kids might learn that's driving a lot of this. And the truth is that kids are going to learn a whole lot more from a book in a library um, that, you know, was written in order to speak to them than, you know, random stuff they might find, as you said, on the internet. And I think, you know, that's the point of schools. That's the point of things like school libraries. And although, you know, you mentioned it said pearl clutching, you know, and a lot of times I do think there is a, a, an amount of fear or at least, you know, truthful or not, you know, professed fear on the part of some of these people who want to remove these books. But the truth is that, you know, people want to read these things. And librarians have, I think, been caught in the middle of this where a lot of them just have librarians here strong commitments to upholding young people's freedom to read and in seeing that through you know they have um become the targets for a lot of uh, harassment threats you know pejorative insults and other things so let's talk about this uh, hb 900 i think this is the texas restricting explicit and adult designated Educational Resources Reader Act requires booksellers to rate sexual content in all books sold to schools. This was deemed unconstitutional, but then recently with this week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said no. It gave it the go-ahead so that Texas will proceed with this book ban law. So this is the latest, right? This is the latest, and I think right now, you know, the— the situation is one that's still unfolding. It's not that uncommon um, for a little bit of back and forth to happen, you know, in different levels of the judiciary. Um, I think ultimately, you know, when you look at this law, 
its unconstitutionality is, you know, obvious and blatant. I mean, you have a situation where you are imposing state, you know, vaguely defined categories of content that you're going to um, force booksellers to label books and make determinations about, you know, what books get what labels. And, and I think somewhere in the law is the idea that if a bookseller doesn't label the books in a way that is consistent with what the state tells them, then the state can put them on a blacklist and they can't sell to schools in, in Texas. And I think the whole thing is you know, really just going to create a lot of administrative confusion, let alone, you know, suppression of content um, for people who, who want it. And, and I think we do have to be concerned always, but, you know, as a free expression organization who does work in the United States and around the world, our interest is in, you know, the liberties that ought to be part of a democratic society. And I think when you're talking about a law that's going to have such outsized impacts on just the availability of information and ideas, we do have to ask questions about what are the interests driving that and, um, you know, whether those interests are really just trying to engage in a form of state mandated suppression. Jonathan Friedman is the director of free expression and educational programs at PEN America. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. You can find past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us wherever you get great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.